Lessons in Tanya. The Tanya of Rabbi Schneir Zalman of Liadi. Taught by Rabbi Ben-Zion Krasniansky. Tanya's text elucidated by Rabbi Yosef Weinberg. Every Jew inherits from their parents, all the way back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, and Leah. We inherit a Jewish soul. We inherit a Jewish faith. What is the Jewish faith? Jewish faith is the realization that from God's point of view, there is no other reality other than God. Not only there's no other God, there's no other power or force, and that God not only creates the world, but He constantly sustains the world, and He constantly... Um, conducts the world but that there's no other existence other than God from God's point of view all there is is God and he used the analogy it's like letters and words letters and words have a meaning to us we communicate with letters and words but to the source of letters and words which is ourselves when the letters and words were, were in a state of non-being where do the letters and words that we use to communicate where do they come from they come from within us they don't come out of thin air you have to think of words to communicate whatever's going on inside of you, emotions or, or a cancer. Where do those words come from? They come from within you. But when they're within you, they're in a state of non-being and non-existence. You can't even find it. It means nothing. Because it has no value. It adds no value. Words and letters only mean something when you need to communicate something outside of yourself. But for yourself, they mean absolutely nothing. The raw intellectual concept or the raw emotion all the words in the world can adequately, adequately describe and express a genuine emotion. You don't love in French or in Russian or, or in English. It's beyond words. It transcends words. So the words are there. They're the source of the words. But within the source, they don't exist. It doesn't mean anything. It has no value. It doesn't add anything to the emotion. So all there is is the emotion. The words are there, but it, it, it's as if it's not there. It doesn't mean anything. It has absolutely no value. So all there is is the raw emotion. All there is is the raw intellect. It's only when, when you leave the raw emotion, so to speak, when you leave the raw intellect, when you need to communicate to someone else, that's when you have to come up with words and letters and language to describe what's going on inside of you. It's one analogy. So, so too with God, within God, the words and letters with which God creates the world, the Hebrew letters with which God creates the world, which is God's energy, Every letter represents a certain concentration of channeling of God's energy. Every shape of the letter, every numerical value of a letter, the combination of a letter is like in chemistry. You mix different chemicals, you combine words, letters, you get different words. So these are the building blocks of creation. This is, this, is, this is the divine energy with which God creates the world. So God speaks and he communicates. And he creates us. He creates someone to communicate with. But these words and letters within God as if they don't exist. It doesn't add anything. It's not like this is what God does. He creates worlds. He's busy. He's occupied. He's engaged. It's absolutely meaningless. It's like to us, speaking. What does speaking mean in comparison to the source of speech? Nothing. Meaningless. It doesn't add anything to us. So too, within God, the words and letters, which never left God, because unlike in the human case, our words and letters leave us. We wish we can take back our words. Once we speak, it's too late. It's recorded, someone heard us, there's no going back. You said it, it's on record. But with God, the word, His words and letters, even after He speaks, it's like before He speaks, it never leaves God. 
So the words always remain within the source. There's no space empty of God. So within God, the words and letters are in a state of non-being and non-existence. It's there, but you don't even notice it. The words and letters don't notice themselves, and, and, and the source doesn't notice the words and letters. It's there, but you can't find it. It's in a state of non-being and non-existence. That is the true state of the world. That is, from God's point of view, the entire world and everything that exists in heavenly realms and the material realms is in a state of non-being and non-existence. All there is is God. Now, it's counterintuitive. It seems to be like super rational, beyond the logical mind, because we can only think in our frame of reference in terms of existence. We can't imagine that something is in a state of non-being and non-existence. God created us that we should sense ourselves. He did create this frame of reference. It's not an accident. It's not an illusion. God did create us intentionally. He created us that we do sense ourselves. We do have egos. And we do feel our separateness. And we do feel ourselves. We very much feel ourselves. Um, this world that we live in is a very egotistical world. A very self-centered world. That's the way we experience ourselves. Everything from the amoeba on... Everything, the most powerful force in this world that we live in is self-preservation. Ego, self. Um, and even the higher realms. The higher realms, there is no ego. The angels are angelic and spiritual and sublime. But nevertheless, they are an entity separate from God. They are like the light of the sun outside the sun. The light is a completely dependent being. The light has no existence other than the sun. The light is connected to its source. It points to its source. Energy, spirituality, points to the source. If you have electricity, if it's not connected to its source, it ceases, it ceases to uh, exist. But nevertheless, there is the source, and then there's the light of the sun, which exists outside of the source. And that's why the angels are constantly agitated. They're constantly praising God because they want to be absorbed in the source. They sense their, their separateness. And, then, and it agitates them. They, don't, they get very excited because they don't want to be separate. They want to be absorbed within God. And they're not. So they're con in this constant state of agitation, energy, a constant state of energy, a constant state of connection to their source, pointing to the source. But they exist outside of their source. But in this world, we're not even like the light of the sun outside the sun. We, we look at, you look at ourselves, we sense ourselves, you look at a tree, you look at the world, it doesn't point its finger to its source. You don't sense God. Every, Mother Nature, everything points its finger to itself, as if existence begins without any source, that we, are, we exist because we exist. We have no source, we have no, I am because I am. I don't know rhyme, no reason, I don't need a justification, I don't have a, a cause, I don't have a source. We just sense ourselves. Mother Nature, we feel, it feels so natural. We just exist. Why do I exist? I don't know. I don't need an explanation. I am. Period. So this is a very egotistical world that we live in. But God created us that way. And there's a reason why God created us that way. There's a purpose. Because again, He wants us. When we penetrate through the darkness, when we open our eyes and we realize the truth, that there is no other reality but God. But we realize it on our own, on a conscious level. So much so that we, we get excited about it. We fulfill the purpose, the divine purpose of creation. We give God tremendous pleasure, tremendous joy. It's like God gave us a riddle and he gave us a puzzle. And when we figure it out, he gets very excited. Because we figured it out. Look at our wisdom. And that, that was, that's the whole purpose. That, that's what he wanted. He gave us clues, 
And this is especially the Jewish mission is we are the investigative reporters. We have to get to the we have to get to the bottom of the story. He gave us enough clues. And we have to penetrate through, get beyond the surface, and realize the truth that there's no other reality but God. But once it hits home, once you make that shift in your consciousness and your awareness, and you begin to realize and you begin to look at yourself and the world around you from different eyes, from a different perspective, you're able to see the world from God's point of view, that there's no other reality but God, and you're able to realize that God is woven into the very fabric of our being. God is within us, all around us. There's no other reality but God. And we're just, we're just part of God's reality. We're absolutely unified within the absolute unity of God. Once you realize it and it hits home, it, it, it's like it totally transforms you, totally inspires you. It, it's, it's almost like resurrection. It's compared to resurrection. You come alive. The world suddenly becomes a beautiful place. The world becomes an illuminated place. You see the divine potential in everything. You see, you see a beautiful world. You see a beautiful... You see a divine world versus people can go through their entire lives and all you see is a very brutish, nasty, egotistical, selfish, self-centered, self-absorbed type of existence. And the world is a very harsh world. It's a different world. So when we make that breakthrough and we're able to penetrate through the darkness, that's the whole purpose. That's what God wants. And we do it on our own, using our seichel, using our... God-given intellect that He gave us and we have the wisdom to open our eyes and to open our minds and open our hearts and realize the truth and the reality and to shift our whole perspective. It's like that famous visual, um, you know, where you can either see one thing or see the other thing. It depends how you look at it. You know, the famous picture with the vases, the two vases. You're seeing a vase or you're seeing two, prof- two profiles. Right, the Rosh test. So you shift perspective and suddenly you see one thing, you shift your perspective, you see, you see two vases. You shift your perspective, you see two faces. It's, it's all a matter of shifting your perspective. So we're created with a perspective, a very egotistical perspective. But when you're suddenly able to shift that perspective, suddenly you're able to see godliness, you're able to see that we're just unified within the absolute unity of God. And you really understand it in a very real way. They're very genuine. You internalize that. You integrate that concept. And it becomes part of you. Then that gives you tremendous joy that we have this wealth that we inherited, this Jewish faith, this Jewish soul that we inherited from our parents, that we have this instinct, this almost sixth sense. And when we're able to internalize and integrate this faith and absorb it on a conscious level, you know, we, we, we come alive. And knowing how much joy and pleasure this gives Hashem, that alone gives us tremendous joy. And this enables us to go and fulfill the Torah and the mitzvot. That's what we discussed the other time, last class, in chapter 33. But now he's going to discuss, the question is, what if a person can't experience this or feel this truth experientially to experience that there's no other reality but God could you imagine if we truly experienced that we would be dancing dancing from the rooftops if you suddenly had that shift and you suddenly realized that God is not some spiritual abstraction some heavenly abstraction 
but that God is woven into the very fabric of our being. God is right here. There's no other reality but God. And we are absolutely unified within the absolute unity of God. If we truly experience that, we would be dancing from ecstasy. But we don't. We may know it intellectually. We may know it conceptually. But we're not dancing from joy. It doesn't, doesn't excite us because it's, it's abstract to us. It's very difficult for us to truly experience it, to truly feel it, with every fiber of our being and every bone in our body. The majority of the time, most of us cannot feel it experientially, with a few exceptions, the patriarchs and the matriarchs. The Torah refers to the patriarchs and the matriarchs as the chariots. The righteous people? Not only they were righteous, they were chariots. A chariot has no ego. A chariot is like, is like putty in your hands. Wherever you want the chariot to go, it goes. Right? You drive the car. Wherever you want the car, you don't have to wrestle with the car. Go left. No, the car says, I think you should go right. <laughs> you, know, you don't have to force the car. Wherever you want to go, it just becomes a tool in your hands. Wherever you want. There's no ego. There's no agenda. So the patriarchs and the matriarchs weren't just religious people. Deeply religious people. Pious people. Intensely religious people. A religious person is someone who has an ego, who has an agenda, but he nullifies his ego before God's ego, before the big God, the supreme being. So if I want to do one thing and God says do another thing, who wins? Of course God wins. He's more powerful than me. He precedes me. He creates me. So if I'm wise enough, I'm going to fight with God. It's ridiculous. If you have, an, if you have a little seichel. But that's religion. The patriarchs and the matriarchs were deeper than religion were more than religious. They were chariots. They were egoless. There was no ego. Their whole being was permeated with godliness. 24-7. There was no ups and downs. 24-7. Whatever they were doing, whether they were eating or they were drinking or they were sleeping, whatever they were doing, 24-7, they were in a constant state of egolessness. It's hard, for, difficult for us to relate to it because we are very much egotistical. To be in a constant state of egolessness, that their whole being is, is, is like a chariot, completely one, like a tool in the hands of the, of the rider, completely one with God, 24-7, experientially one with God, that's something that we can't even relate to. But that's our origin. That's who the patriarchs and the matriarchs were. But we are not on that level. We don't even delude ourselves. that We, we even come close to that level so the question is how can we accomplish the same the same thing if not experientially how can we accomplish it practically like it says every single one of us is obligated to say when will my actions reach the level of the actions of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel and Leah now if you look carefully in the language it doesn't say that every one of us is obligated to say when will I reach the level of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, Sarah, Rebecca, Rishon only a fool could aspire to something like that it's ridiculous it's totally beyond our realm it's totally beyond our, our capability that's not what the Torah is asking of us but the Torah is asking us listen carefully to the language when will my actions reach the level of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob to the actions of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob if I cannot live on this level, this truth, experientially, that there's no other reality but God, I can't live it with every fiber of my being, every bone in my body, an awaking, conscious state, 
but I could live it in my actions. How? When you, as Kalman says, when you observe the Torah and the mitzvah, when you lead a righteous life, and you follow the divine law, as spelled out in the Code of Jewish Law, and you live a godly life, then, practically, you are living that truth. Because every time you do a mitzvah, you're really expressing the truth that there's no other reality but God. Every time you're doing a mitzvah, you're revealing. You're living life from God's point of view, from the inside looking out. We are living life from the outside looking in. But from God's point of view, God's perspective, from the inside looking out, God gave us His gift. He gave us His Torah, which is His vision of reality. God's perspective, the divine perspective. And God gave us Torah mitzvot which permeate every aspect of our life. He gave us the opportunity to live our lives in a way that's consistent with that truth. What a gift. What a precious gift. By living by the divine law, by doing a life of Torah mitzvot, we're able to live consistently with that truth. That every day of our life and every aspect of our life becomes an expression of the reality and the truth that there's no other reality but God. So although experientially we can't live that way 24-7, but practically we could. And that's the gift of Torah. And it's even greater than the matriarchs and patriarchs because they were created differently. We have so many more, um, I'm trying to think of distractions. We who are in a dark place, in a dark setting, and yet when, when the light is able to penetrate that darkness, is able to overcome that darkness, there's a depth to that light and a meaningfulness to that light that you, you can't have otherwise. You know, it's like the story of Helen, another famous story. They asked the wise men of Helen were having this great debate. Which is superior, the sun or the moon? And they concluded, of course, the moon. Why? Because the sun shines during the day when it's light anyway. The moon <laughs> lights at night. Point. Right, at night when it's dark, when you need it. <laughs> so of course we would all rather be the sun. But, but the truth is, yes, this is the whole purpose of creation. The patriarchs and the matriarchs <laughs> paved the way for us. They were, they were the forerunners, they paved the way. But the purpose is, the Torah and the mitzvah, the purpose is the Torah and mitzvah, and especially the Torah and the mitzvah that we do, as we're going to learn later on in our generation, the times of exile, there's nothing as precious as the Torah and mitzvah that we do in the year 2008. Because the darker the exile, the more spiritually oppressive the environment. And yet, even in this environment, you're able to lift up your head and do a righteous deed, a good deed and act selflessly and do the right thing and live by the divine law and the divine Torah. It's so precious. Penetrating this darkness, transforming this darkness is so meaningful, so precious. That's the whole purpose of creation. This gives God the ultimate joy and, and this is the whole purpose of creation. So you're right. But, you know, it reminds me of the story. We know in the Kabbalah there's the ten Svirot, the ten divine emanations. The highest one being Chachma, wisdom, the creative ability. And the lowest one being Malchus, royalty, communication, expression, That's the lowest? speech. Yeah. Speech and communication is the lowest? Yeah, it comes at the end. You start with the creative spark, and then comes the analytical mind, and then comes the conviction, and then comes the emotion, and then you have to process it. Speech comes all the way at the end. You have to have what to communicate. First comes the intellect, and then comes the emotion, and then communication alone is nothing. That's what we have today. We have 
a lot of communication without any content. <laughs> communication without content is meaningless. It's absolutely nothing. We're talking about when communication comes, when you're communicating something of content, you're communicating an intellectual concept, a depth, you're communicating a genuine emotion. That's, that's the problem in our day and age. People forgot, our politicians especially, that communication is not an end in itself. You have to have what to communicate also. <laughs> it's the substance that matters. But you have to communicate it in a way that, that people could hear it. But the ideal is the combination of the substance and the communication. So communication is the end of the process, not the beginning. So the big process begins with creativity, the creative flash, the spark, the window to the soul, the window to the subconscious. And that starts the whole conscious evolution. Then, then you analyze it and you, and you break it apart and then it turns into conviction and then it turns to a full-fledged emotion which leads to, um, it leads to motivation, ambition and then you actually communicate it. That's the end result. So that's the process. We're not going to go into that right now. We discuss it many times. But this is the process, the tense virot. So they, say, they, they tell this anecdote that this chachma, wisdom, of the divine world of emanation came to Malchus, which is the divine attribute of royalty of communication, and says, I want to do a shidduch with you. I want to marry you. Malchus is very humble. It's all the way at the end. He says, you want to marry me? You're Chachma. You're the king. You're the beginning. You're the spark. You're the closest to the divine. I'm just communication. I'm nothing. As only wisdom is capable, Chachma opens the mind of royalty and says, you don't understand that at the source, you're much deeper than I am. Communication is rooted in a much deeper place than wisdom. The need to communicate, the need to have a relationship outside of yourself comes from the deepest place within a person. And that's why when you do communicate, we find that it amplifies whatever is going on inside of us, it amplifies it a thousandfold. What happened in the 1950s when we, when we entered into the era of communication? Businesses exploded because when you communicate, it, whatever is going on before is amplified a thousandfold. That's the power of communication. It's so powerful. When you speak, whatever concept you had before, when you communicate it and you articulate it, it's like fountains of, of wellsprings of wisdom open up in your mind. Things, you, insights you had no clue of before. As brilliant as you are on your own, and as much as you comprehend the concept, it's only when you communicate that it amplifies whatever is going on inside of you. It amplifies a thousandfold. That's the power of communication. So wisdom is explaining all of this to Malchus, that you're superior than I am. That's why I want to marry you. After hearing his whole speech, after understanding this concept, Royal Malchus says, I don't want to do a shidduch with you. I don't want to marry you. He says, why? Wisdom asks, why don't you want to marry me? He says, are you kidding? You just explained to me that I'm much deeper than you. I should marry you. You're not good enough for me. So wisdom says, nah, I don't want to marry you anymore. He says, the whole advantage, the whole advantage is when you're humble. When you don't, you're not conscious of your, of your greatness. The moment you're conscious of your greatness, then you're really nothing. <laughs> then you're really a nobody. Then who needs you? Who wants you? So, yes, it's true that we, in a certain way, we fulfill the whole purpose of creation. 
in comparison to the patriarchs and the matriarchs. But our whole advantage is when we're unselfconscious of our quality. If we have to know our place. The patriarchs and the matriarchs are the holiest because they were holy people. Because on a conscious level, an experiential level, they sensed, they were egoless. They sensed there's no ego, there's no, there's no entity outside of God, there's no reality outside of God. All there is is God. And they felt it and they breathed it and they lived it and with every fiber they bring it. So they were holy. They are the patriarchs, they are the matriarchs, they are the foundation of the Jewish people. And therefore we stand in their presence with tremendous humility. Because we are struggling in the darkness. How could you compare struggling in the darkness to the greatness? And when you have that perspective, then you're right. <laughs> then what we are accomplishing is unbelievable. Beyond what the patriarchs and the matriarchs would accomplish. Right. But only, not if we think that we're superior. When the moment we think we're superior to the patriarchs and the matriarchs, then we're really nobodies. <laughs> then, then we accomplish nothing and achieve nothing. But when we stand in humility, when we would rather be in a place that it's holy, in a time that's holy, we would rather be conscious of holiness instead of being immersed in this darkness that we are. And yet we do the right thing and we overcome. And then it has so, much, so precious and it's so special and so meaningful. Okay, let's start inside. Want to say something before we start? Yes. Um, what you... What the reference, frame of reference perfectly describes the presidential candidates issue with the media circus and all of that. It's precisely just as you described it um, in terms of the communication, and, but, but, but without the substance, the substance without the, the critical thinking, which is so essential. That's why, in, in one sense, we're living in a very spiritually dark, such saturated with darkness because you know communication is not about dumbing down to the lowest common denominator on the contrary genuine communication seeks the highest common denominator it elevates everyone because it's communicating truth truth today has become a dirty word nowhere to be found matter of fact most people even if it stared them in the face they wouldn't even, couldn't even identify what truth is they don't even believe in truth in the universities, our students are taught, our kids are taught that, to believe that there is no truth. I mean, so you're talking about a, a complete distortion of, of what communication is all about. But we are living in the communication age and the information age. So the potential that we have today, we never had before in human history. So we're living like in a twilight zone. On one hand, it's the darkest moment, spiritually oppressive, when you're constantly bombarded with this superficiality and this dumbing down and lack of genuineness and everything is so artificial it's, it's hard to take you know sometimes it's just repulsive but at the other hand we also have to realize the divine opportunities that we had today that our ancestors never had because we have the opportunity to communicate and with the internet we can talk to millions of people so if we utilize these tools that God gave us these are wonderful tools we, we don't have to just because people have corrupted it, it doesn't mean that we have to follow suit. We have the responsibility, especially the Jewish people, have the responsibility to utilize all these powerful technologies that God has given us. And it's not just technologies, it's an age, a communication age, information age. We have the opportunity 
to grow in our Yiddishkeit, to amplify the message a thousandfold, to use it in such a powerful, positive, wholesome way. But that takes effort. It's so much easier just to dumb down and just to divorce communication from, from anything, from truth. It's much more difficult to be able to communicate the highest common denominator, truth. But it take, it's difficult to communicate the truth without diluting the truth. It's very difficult. It's so much easier to dilute the truth, to cut corners, dilute the truth, because you want to be popular. You want to communicate. You want to be popular. You want to reach as many people as possible. You want to go commercial. So in order to go commercial, you cut corners, you tell lies, half-truths. You know, but it's, it's, it's a cop-out. It's the easy way out. The challenge of communication is, and that's the challenge that the Rebbe placed and the Chabad movement, the challenge that the Rebbe placed and the Rebbe uses movement, the Chabad Lubavitch movement, and that's the appeal of the Chabad Lubavitch movement to the 4,000 Chabad houses like the present one we're sitting in all over the world. The appeal of the Chabad movement, the hundreds of thousands of Jews literally in every corner of the world, is that Chabad communicates, but it doesn't compromise. One iota of the truth. You're getting it genuine, like mother's milk. There's no artificial ingredients. There's nothing synthetic. It's genuine. It's authentic. But it's communicated in a way that's it's easy to digest. It's friendly. It's welcoming. It's not harsh. But you're getting the truth. You're not getting a watered-down version because someone thinks, you know, I better dumb it down because people can't handle the truth. You have, you're getting the respect. Communication has to be based on respect. I respect you and I respect the truth. I don't have to water down the truth. And I don't have to compromise. There's not even one letter of the truth. I can be just as Jewish today as my parents were, as my grandparents a thousand years ago, 3,000 years ago. I don't have to compromise one iota of the truth just in order to make it popular. That's a distortion. That's a cop-out. And people see through it. If not today, they see through it tomorrow. The challenge of our age is to utilize communication. And that's what the Rebbe channeled his organization, the Chabad Lubavitch movement, to communicate the truth, but to communicate in a friendly way. When you communicate, you have to get into the mind of the, your audience. You have to speak their language. But speak the truth. Give them the whole truth and nothing but the truth. But in a way that's easily digestible, in a way that's friendly and warm and welcome. That's challenging. That takes tremendous effort. It's so much easier either not to communicate, as many religious groups do. They just isolate themselves and stick to themselves. I don't want to communicate. Why should I, why should I communicate? I'll create an artificial ghetto. And as long as my family is is living a righteous life, and what do I care about the rest of the world? So there's no communication. It's one extreme. And the other extreme is, let me dilute the message, water down the message, because the person can't handle it. And that's insulting. Frankly, that's insulting. You're insulting your audience, and you're insulting the message. You don't have confidence in the message. You think the audience can't handle the message. Maybe you just think it's the lesser of many, like you're talking about conservative, conservative and... Whatever label you want to give it. No, but I mean, it just makes, it's, it's somehow better than the alternative, though, still. It's not. It's not better than the alternative. It's not better than the alternative. Because what happens is, at the end of the day, it completely backfires. You know, you, ha- you have to look at results. When you're looking at a business, look at results. 
when you see the results, the bottom line is, look at the simulation rate. It doesn't work. On the contrary, it backfires. Because what you're getting is a lie. You're getting a distortion. And, and you, lo you lose all confidence. I don't trust it. If it's manipulated, it's, if I can manipulate it and I can, I can cut corners, and then it's, it's not genuine. So it's not real. It's better not to be distorted, better to have no exposure to anything Jewish than to get to be ex exposed in a distorted way. It's so much more difficult to undo distortion. Imagine, think of your first teacher, your first science teacher, and that it happened to be a lousy teacher and that left you a very bad impression about science. It's so much more difficult to undo a negative impression than it is a blank slate. Blank slate, I, have no, I, have no, I don't know anything about it. So I'm open. But I, didn't, I wasn't distorted. But when you're exposed to something that's meaninglessness, I know, you ask most Jews, it's meaningless. What was, what, what was, I mean, I have very strong Zionistic feelings. I mean, so, I mean, there's definitely a conflict. I mean, uh, you know. So what do you say about Zionism? Unfortunately, we're living, I think you're the last Zionist in the world alive because we're living in a post-Zionist post, post age. <laughs> to whom? Who's defining the term? I know. I, I, no, I'm just, I'm just you know, listen, I'm, I'm, half, uh, yeah, yeah. I'm half joking. But in Israel, they, 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 they're very proud of the fact, all the intellectual uh, elite in Israel uh, are proud of the fact that they're post-Zionist. And um, they basically... They basically don't believe in it anymore, and they want to give up half of the country. They want to give up Jerusalem, they want to give up the West Bank, and they want to give up everything. So they, they don't believe in it. They just want Israel to become a universal country and loving and accepted. They want to take out any Jewish reference of the country. So um, it's, it, it doesn't work. Artificial substitutes don't work. Something that's genuine doesn't need any embellishment. We have been around. Jews have been around for 3,800 years. Our ancestors, for 3,800 years without any interruption, faithfully, consistently lived a Jewish life, kept the Torah, lived by the Torah, believed in the mission of the Jew, believed in our destiny, believed in our history, without any interruption, through thick and thin, fire and water, pogroms, holocaust, destructions, Cossacks, Order the phase, Inquisition, Stalinism, Stalinism, Communism, anything. Nothing could deter us. The, every Jew that's alive today, our ancestors, going back two, three generations, 3,800 years consistently without any interruption. Because you know what happened to those Jews who stopped following the Torah in the Mitzvah? Historically, they disappeared. There's not, not a trace left of them. Every Jew that's alive today, it's very hard to find a fourth, fifth generation reform. At that time, that most of them are assimilated. It's hard to find. It doesn't work. So when truth doesn't need embellishment, there's the divine Torah. And we are people of the book. And when we cling and we're connected to the Torah, this, we become the eternal people. We have, it sustains us. It gives us life. And it carries us. And it, 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 despite all odds, miraculously, it sustains us. Miracle after miracle after miracle. I just heard today, someone sent me today an interview by John Voigt. Oh, he's the actor. Very, yeah, he's very 
supportive, very supportive of Jews and Israel and, and Chabad and the seven Noahide laws. And he was interviewed in Israel. He came to visit Shteirot. And they asked him, why are you so passionate about Jews? He says, I think everyone should be passionate about Jews. He says, look at their history. He says, their history, miracle after miracle after miracle. Any of those incidences alone was enough to wipe them out and that, to make, cause them to disappear. No, but he's a Noahide. He's a righteous Gentile. The thing is, he's, he considers himself a righteous Gentile. And he says, if you look at their history, look at their story, how could you not see the hand of God? With the, the mighty Romans, the mighty Greeks, a long gone and disappeared. And the little tiny Jew who stood up single-handedly against the entire world, the most ancient religion in the world. The most ancient religion in the world after Judaism is Hinduism. It's only 3,200 years old. Judaism is 3,800 years old. And look, it's been crushed, oppressed persecuted, exiled. And look, that never left the front pages of history. He says, how can I not be passionate about the Jews? I think every, every human being alive should be passionate about the Jews because the Jew is, is the conduit to divine, to divine. You see the divine hand in Jewish history. You see clearly the divine hand in Jewish history. So we are the eternal people and we have a divine program. It's called the Torah and the Mitzvah. And it has never failed us because we are still here. Only because we kept to the Torah and the Mitzvah. There is no other explanation. There's no rational explanation. You can't explain 1948 and you can't explain 1967 and you can't explain the 1981. There's no rational explanation. There were six million Jews. Yes. 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 And that's, and that's what makes it even more astonishing that despite all of that, We've never left the front pages of history. It's like the, the like we regenerated ourselves, the survivors miraculously rebuilt their lives, created a whole revival of Jewish life. It's it's astonishing. After being crushed like that, you, you would think they would hide in the hole for the next hundred years. Where did they get the energy and the strength to rejuvenate? Pun intended, to recreate a vibrant Jewish life in every corner of the world. This is the biggest testimony. I once heard Menachem Begin speak live. I was studying in Israel in 1981. Uh, the best speaker I heard in my life. He was speaking in English. This was right after Israel attacked the Iraqi reactor in 1981. And I was studying in Israel then. And uh, in the summer, they had the survivors with their children. This was like the generation. The survivors were handing over the legacy to their children and that they, they should carry on the mission of keeping the Holocaust and keeping the memory because they were starting to die out, that, that generation. So, first thing he says, he says, you know, many people ask, where was God during the Holocaust? He himself, you know, he was arrested in Stalinist Russia. His, I think his family was affected by the Holocaust. He says, he says, I'm not a rabbi, but let me give you a few answers. He said, we all know one of the points he made, and that was the key point. He says, during the war, uh, all the allies met in Bermuda, I believe. And there were half a million, talk about a half a million shoes, babies, half a million Jewish babies that were exterminated in the Holocaust, little tiny shoes. So the great United States and all the other countries got together about opening their countries for immigration, allowing the Jews to come in, saving Jewish life. And the answer was, across the board, no. We're not letting Jews in. 
knowing that the Holocaust was going on. So the great United States, our great friend, decided, decided no, we're not letting, and they even send the ship back. The St. Louis, right. Send them back to their deaths. Um, so he was trying to say we can't rely on the United States. Israel has to rely on itself. has to take care of, of its own. And then he said, we know that Germany was developing the bomb. If the, had the war continued just another few months, it, Germany would have had the bomb. He said, who would have won the war at the end had Germany developed the bomb? He says, I don't know. But one thing I can tell you, and he points to the crowd, you wouldn't be here today, and neither would I be here today. So he said, there's no God. You know, he was talking along, along those, those lines. So. so the fact that the Jew has survived and thrived and never left the front pages. As Ben-Gurion said, a Jew living in the Middle East who doesn't believe in miracles is not a realist. How can you not believe in God? You see openly the divine hand of God. Today in Israel, for every, tragically, for every suicide bomber, for every attack, for every victim that we hear about, there are 99 attacks that miraculously did not take place. Missiles, 4,000 missiles that are flying. Naturally, the amount of casualties, I mean the miracles that happen on a daily basis, anyone who has his eyes open. If you remember Saddam Hussein's 39 accurate misses, 39 scuds, one scud hit Saudi Arabia, 29 American soldiers unfortunately, tragically died. 39 scuds hit, most of them Tel Aviv, the most populated, densely populated place in Israel. And not a single person died from the scuds. There was one person that died from the gas mask, caught a heart attack, he was because of the gas mask. Not a single person. May I ask you about, but most of Israel, the largest percentage are secular, you know, the, a larger percentage. So Firstly, may I correct that? Oh. Uh, that's another media myth. If you, they did a survey in Israel. Over 90% of Israelis go to Shul and Yom Kippur. Close to 80% have kosher homes. Right, 80% Yes, homes? they would eat, they may eat out, outside of the house. But in their home, they have a kosher home. More than 50% consider themselves traditional. They're not, they're not... Right, right. So, so there's a balance between... No, so, so, so this picture that Israel is this radical, no. secular, anti-religious... No, anti, anti yes, there are a minority. Yes, there are a handful. You know, we shouldn't label ourselves. Labels are not helpful. Including Orthodox. Labels were invented 200 years ago. Judaism did not begin in the shtetl. Judaism was 3,800 years. At Mount Sinai, there were no Orthodox. There were no reform, there were no conservatives. If Moses were here today, which congregation would he join? He wouldn't know what you're talking about. I've never seen a reformed Torah or a conservative Torah. There's one Torah, there's one Jew, there's one God. It's not where you are in the ladder, it's which direction you're going. As long as we're growing in our Jewishness. It's like organic, it's alive, it's, it, you're growing. Don't limit yourself. If someone limits himself, he calls himself orthodox, you're limiting yourself. It means I'm complacent, I'm satisfied, I'm content. Then you're spiritually dead. Judaism is alive. As long, as long as we're growing, as long as we're moving forward, and, and our appetite, we, it only whets our appetite. You do one mitzvah, your appetite grows, and then you want to do two mitzvot, and then you want to do four mitzvot. And mitzvot are very addictive, and there's no cure for this addiction. There's no mitzvah anonymous. 
<laughs> the more mitzvot you do, the more you want to do, and the more you grow. And, and, uh, and that's Judaism. All these labels, the Sephardic Jews don't have that confusion. It's interesting. Among the Sephardic Jews, there's no Orthodox, there's no Reform, there's no Conservative. They don't have any of that nonsense. That's why they hardly have any assimilation. They know there's one Torah. Either I live up to it, or I don't live up to it. But I'm not going to dumb down the standards to appease my consciousness because I can't live up to the rules, so I'm, I can't live up to the divine law. It's not rules, it's divine law. If I can't live up to it, to appease my consciousness, I lost the game, I'm going to change the rules of the game, now I won. Patrilineal descent. <laughs> my children are Jewish. Oh, suddenly, change the rules, and suddenly the father is Jewish, the children are Jewish. We just doubled the Jewish population. If you did that in business, you would be arrested. Have $100,000 in the bank overnight, 100000 turns into 200000 Based on patrilineal descent, we can solve, resolve the Arab-Israeli conflict. Because we can just call them Jewish. Because they come from Yishmael, his father was Jewish. So they're all Jewish and we're all set and there's no problem. I mean, this, is, this is nonsense. This is not honest. This is totally dishonest. If you, if you don't live up to it, don't change just to appease your conscience. This is the reality. Either I live up to it, I don't live up to it. I aspire to live up to it. I'm going to try to grow as much as I can. But don't lower the standard. Don't dumb down the standards. That's a distortion. And distortions are lies. And nothing good comes from it. This is something that began 200 years ago with the Enlightenment. You're talking about an actual movement. Yeah, movement. But yeah, so movement. there's just like one shul and one way, but people within... Uh, no, there's one, there's one, exactly. there's one Torah, there's one God, there's one Jew. A Jew is a Jew is a Jew. And as long as we're trying to grow, everyone on their own level, don't judge a book by its cover. You can have a Jew in Iowa who's doing one mitzvah. She's lighting a candle for the first time in his life, a Shabbat candle. Or he's putting on tefillin the first time in his life. You can have a Jew in Jerusalem who's doing 612 mitzvahs. The difference is that yesterday, that Jew in Jerusalem did 613 mitzvot. Well, let's say 612. While the Jew in Iowa yesterday did zero mitzvot. So who's more connected? Who's more in touch? Who's touching the divine? The Jew in Iowa is growing. He's climbing the ladder. The Jew in Jerusalem is either going down the ladder or he's stagnating. So never judge a book by its cover. You can, it's not how many mitzvot you're doing, it's which direction you're going. As long as you're growing, as long as you're connecting, as long as it's alive and it's genuine and it's real, and you have a relationship and you feel it's something, something that, that's real in your life. So all these labels are very distorting. As a matter of fact, the reform and conservative label is just a response to the orthodox label, which is also a distortion. We're not orthodox, we're not, orthodox, we're not reform and conservative, we're Jewish. 100% Jewish. What is Orthodox? Orthodox is someone who's 80% religious. Ultra-Orthodox, someone who's 90% religious. Ultra-Ultra-Orthodox, 95% religious. Conservatox, 70%. Conservative, 60%. Reform, 30%. You know, it's all percentages. Judaism is not religion. Judaism is not percentages. Every Jew is 100% Jewish. That's what it's about. It's about a neshama, it's about a soul. And the simplest Jew is just as connected as the greatest rabbi, mystic, and scholar with a beard to the floor. Every Jew is connected. That's what it's about. That's the foundation. And we, we lost it. We forgot it. In all these labels and distortions, it became so distorted and confused that we lost sight of what makes us Jewish. We have a Jewish soul. And it's 100%. 
It's about right. It's about connection. It's a relationship. It's a reality. We all have it. One hundred percent. We're born with it. It's innate. It's inherent. You're born. You're as Jewish as you will ever be. The moment you're born, you will never you become one iota more Jewish. You can't get rid of it. Either. Yeah, right. A Jew is a Jew is a Jew. It's there forever, and we all have it in common. So how could one Jew look down at another Jew, label each other, and look down and? You're this type of Jew and you're that type of Jew. And these labels create artificial barriers where none exist. We're all connected. We're all one. Every Jew is 100% connected with Hashem. And that's the foundation. That's what we have to go back to. So that's where the communication, when communication became divorced of the truth, and it just became a dumbing down out of a disrespect for the, for the audience. People thought, you know, in America, people can't handle it. In the modern world, they can't handle it. They can't be a hundred percent a genuine Jew. No, no, everything has to be to be an organic Jew. No, no, everything has to be synthetic, artificial, dumbed down. You know, it's like you have no confidence. You have no confidence in the message. You have no confidence in the truth of your own Torah, in your own God. You have no confidence in God. Don't you think God created the modern world? Why, why, why do you have to compromise one iota? Truth is truth. Truth never changes. If it's true in Mesopotamia 3,800 years ago, it's true today. You light the same Shabbat candles that Sarah lit and Rebecca lit and Rachel. We're eating the same matzah that our ancestors ate 3,320 years ago. We're putting on the same tefillin that Moses ate. But the, the ideal is to realize that the, to reconcile the linear with, the, with that eternity. In other words, to internalize the Torah into our linear existence, into our daily consciousness, into our daily lives, into our modern lives. You can be firmly planted in this world, totally successful, whatever you're doing, in your career, whatever you're doing, and be 100% Jewish. And not only isn't it a contradiction, on the contrary, the more in touch you are with your soul, the more in touch you are with your core and your essence and your being, it will amplify, enhance whatever is going on in your life, your art, your music, your creativity, whatever is going on in your life. You'll be a much more secure person. You'll be a much more centered person. You'll be a much more focused person. You'll be a much more relaxed person. And you will be much more successful. So not only is there no contradiction between your spirituality, the divine part of your life, and your mundane, ordinary life, for a Jew there's no compartmentalization. That's the ultimate meaning of what we discussed, the unity of God. What do you mean the unity of God, the absolute unity of God, that there's no other existence but God? What it means ultimately is that there's no compartmentalization. On a personal level, there's no compartmentalization. God is everything. God is not on a Shabbat, on a holy moment when I'm meditating. Or what does it have to do when I'm sitting at the water cooler in my office or running, going about my business or when I'm eating or drinking or sleeping or, or recreation? or my personal relationships. No there's, no, there's no such thing. For a Jew, God permeates 24-7. There's not a single aspect in my life, not a single aspect in existence that's not permeated with the reality of God. And that's why Torah and mitzvot are all, all, in, all inclusive. They're in, all encompassing. It's not like religion. Religion is very compartmentalized. Religion is something you either do Friday, Saturday, or Sunday. Certain areas in your life, when you pray, or on a holy day, Judaism is all-encompassing. The Torah guides us how to tie our shoes. It ties us, ties, guides us how to sleep. It guides, every area in our life, business, commerce, relationship, there isn't a single area of existence. There isn't a single area in our life that the Torah doesn't guide us and illuminate our lives for us because God is everything. 
there's, no, there's not a single aspect outside of God. It's not 99.9%, 100%. It becomes part of our reality. So for a Jew, there's no compartmentalization. So there's no disconnect between the material, the body and the soul, east versus west, spiritual versus material, the right brain, the left brain, heaven, earth. For a Jew, there's only one reality. There's one absolute truth. That's the Jewish faith. That's the Jewish soul. There's only one absolute God. And the same God who created the heavens created the earth. The same God that created higher levels of consciousness created the material, the physical. The same God that created the soul created the body. The same God that created the divine and the, the mystical created math and science and physics and beauty and art, music. It's all, there's one reality. So for a Jew, there's no compartmentalization. Our, Jew, our Judaism permeates every aspect of our being. And where do we get this from? The patriarchs and the matriarchs. They were chariots. They were egoless. They lived it experientially, 24-7. They experienced God 24-7. It was, it was almost, almost unselfconscious. The whole being was, was godly conscious. That's all they were conscious of, 24-7. Every aspect of their life was, was godly conscious, was a reflection of something divine and godly. They felt it, they experienced it, they breathed it, with every fiber that being every bone in their body. We don't have the capacity. God did not create us with that capacity. Like you said earlier, we don't have the capacity. But well, we, we could live. Uh, uh, by living a Torah life, by doing mitzvah, we have the capacity to live a non-compartmentalized life where every aspect of our life expresses this truth, that there's no other reality but God. By studying Torah, making Torah part of our daily life, and making mitzvot a part of our daily life, and doing a mitzvah each and every day, doing something Jewish each and every day of our lives, studying Torah, giving tzedakah, then, at least on an action level, we can live this truth, the truth that there's no other reality but God, and reveal the essence of God in this physical, material world, thereby fulfilling the ultimate purpose of creation, and give God infinite pleasure, indescribable pleasure. We can't even begin to describe and imagine the pleasure that we are able to give God as puny, as insignificant as we are on our own. When a human being becomes arrogant and egotistical and thinks he's God and creates his own right and wrong and creates his own rules and he decides whatever he wants, then he's really nothing. Then he's truly a nothing and a nobody. <laughs> Not only from God's perspective but even from a human perspective. But when a human being is able to rise above his ego, is able to connect with the divine, is able to realize the truth of Hashem and it internalize it in our daily life, then we can rise to the level that we can give infinite pleasure to God Himself. Imagine we, as insignificant as we are in our own, we can give God such indescribable joy and pleasure. Just the knowledge of that. We're armed with that knowledge. That gives us such a boost. That gives us such a joy, such a, a, a shot in the arm. It gives us a, the energy that we need to propel us forward, to continue to grow and to live life. Enjoy life. Life is beautiful. It's a beautiful world. Life is beautiful. God gave us so many opportunities. And especially in today's challenging times. Because, yes, while communication has become completely corrupted and distorted, but the potential is still there. We have opportunities today that our ancestors could only dream of. In the olden days, when you never left the shtetl you were born in, what was the impact that you had in this world? Yeah, your neighbor and the neighbor next door. That's about it. 
unless you are a genius, you are one in a million, you are Maimonides, you are a great rabbi, great personality, then your name spread far and wide and you had an impact on a larger amount of people. Today, a simple child sitting on a computer is able to reach and communicate millions of people. Why? Because today we have such raw power that's available to us because of all the breakthroughs of Newton and, and, and all the Einsteins and all the geniuses in the past. They've, uh, we've arrived at the, com- at the computer age where the simplest child has more power, more raw power at his fingertips than Einstein himself had. And you're able to communicate and to reach and to have an impact far beyond what was possible 100 years ago. So God gave us such opportunities. You know, the Rebbe would always comment about our generation. He says, there's never been a generation that had so many opportunities like our generation. He said, and there's never been a generation that has wasted so many opportunities. God has given us so many opportunities to do good in such an explosive way, in ways that we can amplify whatever we're doing a thousandfold beyond what our parents and ancestors could ever dream of. But the question is, are we utilizing it? Are we just neglecting it? So we have to realize that in the darkness is tremendous challenge. Don't be taken in by the darkness. Once you realize the reality of God, the unity of God, then you look at the world differently. Instead of being uh, drawn down by the challenges, instead of being um, demoralized by the darkness, you, you see the opportunity. You see the tremendous opportunities that God gave us and you seize the opportunity. And then you use it to, to grow and to intensify the light and to increase the light and to challenge the darkness because when you increase light, there is no room for darkness. How do you fight darkness? You don't fight darkness with a broomstick. I light it with a candle. You light it with a candle. And you don't, even, you don't even have to struggle with the darkness. You light a candle and the darkness just melts away. Why? Because darkness is substance. Darkness, I mean, light is substance. Darkness is merely the void, the emptiness. You fill, when the world is filled with light, there is no room for darkness. Imagine if every Jewish woman in the world lit a Shabbat candle, there would be no room for the dark. Mashiach would come in a second. It would revolutionize human consciousness. And it would bring the reality of God, it would bring it home in a way that everyone would sense it, it would be palpable, it would be tangible. And then the next class would be given by the Alter Rebbe himself. (laughs) 